This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read and recorded by Betsy Bush. Marquette, Michigan, November 2006. Rutabaga Stories by Carl Sandburg. Part 8. Two stories about corn fairies, blue foxes, flongboos, and happenings that happened in the United States and Canada. People. Spink. Scabooch. A man. Corn fairies. Blue foxes. Flongboos. A Philadelphia policeman. Passenger conductor. Chicago newspapers. The head spotter of the weathermakers at Medicine Hat. How to tell corn fairies if you see them. If you have ever watched the little corn begin to march across the black lands, and then slowly change to big corn, and go marching on from the little corn moon of summer to the big corn harvest moon of autumn, then you must have guessed who it is that helps the corn come along. It is the corn fairies. Leave out the corn fairies, and there wouldn't be any corn. All children know this. All boys and girls know that corn is no good unless there are corn fairies. Have you ever stood in Illinois or Iowa and watched the late sun wind or the early fall wind running across the big cornfield? It looks as if a big long blanket were being spread out for dancers to come and dance on. If you look close, and if you listen close, you can see the corn fairies come dancing and singing sometimes. If it is a wild day and a hot sun is pouring down while a cool north wind blows, and this happens sometimes, then you will be sure to see thousands of corn fairies marching and counter-marching in mocking grand marches over the big long blanket of green and silver. Then too they sing. Only you must listen with your littlest and newest ears, if you wish to hear their singing. They sing soft songs that go, Plasizzi, plasizzi, sizzi. And each song is softer than an eye-wink, softer than a Nebraska baby's thumb. And Spink, who is a little girl living in the same house with the man writing this story, and Scabooch, who is another little girl in the same house, both Spink and Scabooch are asking the question, How can we tell corn fairies if we see them? If we meet a corn fairy, how will we know it? And this is the explanation the man gave to Spink, who is older than Scabooch, and Scabooch, who is younger than Spink. All corn fairies wear overalls. They work hard, the corn fairies, and they are proud. The reason they are proud is because they work so hard, and the reason they work so hard is because they have overalls. But understand this, the overalls are corn-gold cloth, woven from leaves of ripe corn, mixed with ripe October corn silk. In the first week of the harvest moon, coming up red and changing to yellow and silver, the corn fairies sit by thousands between the corn rows, 
weaving and stitching the clothes they have to wear next winter, next spring, next summer. They sit cross-legged when they sew, and it is a law among them each one must point the big toe at the moon while sewing the harvest clothes. When the moon comes up red as blood early in the evening, they point their big toes, slanting toward the east. Then, towards midnight, when the moon is yellow and halfway up the sky, their big toes are only half slanted as they sit cross-legged sewing. And after midnight, when the moon sails its silver disk high overhead and toward the west, then the corn fairies sit sewing with their big toes pointed nearly straight up. If it is a cool night and looks like frost, then the laughter of the corn fairies is something worth seeing. All the time they sit sewing their next year clothes, they are laughing. It is not a law they have to laugh. They laugh because they are half tickled and glad because it is a good corn year. And whenever the corn fairies laugh, then the laugh comes out of the mouth like a thin gold frost. If you should be lucky enough to see a thousand corn fairies sitting between the corn rows and all of them laughing, you would laugh with wonder yourself to see the gold frost coming from their mouths while they laughed. Travelers who have traveled far and seen many things say that if you know the corn fairies with a real knowledge, you can always tell by the stitches in their clothes what state they are from. In Illinois, the corn fairies stitch fifteen stitches of ripe corn silk across the woven corn leaf cloth. In Iowa, they stitch sixteen stitches. In Nebraska, seventeen. And the farther west you go, the more corn silk stitches the corn fairies have in the corn cloth clothes they wear. In Minnesota one year, there were fairies with a blue sash of cornflowers across the breast. In the Dakotas the same year, all the fairies wore pumpkin-flower neckties, yellow foreign hands, and yellow ascots. And in one strange year, it happened in both the states of Ohio and Texas, the corn fairies wore little wristlets of white morning glories. The traveler who heard about this asked many questions and found out the reason why that year the corn fairies wore little wristlets of white morning glories. He said, Whenever fairies are sad, they wear white, and this year, which was long ago, was the year men were tearing down all the old zigzag rail fences. Now those old zigzag rail fences were beautiful for the fairies, because a hundred fairies could sit on one rail, and thousands and thousands of them could sit on the zigzags and sing Placizi, Placizi, softer than an eye-wink, softer than a baby's thumb, all on a moonlight summer night. And they found out that year was going to be the last year of the zigzag rail fences. It made them sorry and sad and when they are sorry and sad, they wear white. So they picked the wonderful white morning glories running along the zigzag rail fences and made them into little wristlets and wore those wristlets the next year to show they were sorry and sad. Of course, all this helps you to know how the corn fairies look in the evening, the night-time and the moonlight. Now we shall see how they look in the daytime. 
In the daytime the corn fairies have their overalls of corn gold cloth on, and they walk among the corn rows, and climb the corn stalks, and fix things in the leaves and stalks and ears of the corn. They help it to grow. Each one carries on the left shoulder a mouse brush to brush away the field mice, and over the right shoulder each one has a cricket broom to sweep away the crickets. The brush is a whisk brush to brush away mice that get foolish, and the broom is to sweep away crickets that get foolish. Around the middle of each corn fairy is a yellow belly belt, and stuck in this belt is a purple moon shaft hammer. Whenever the wind blows strong and nearly blows the corn down, then the fairies run out and take their purple moon shaft hammers out of their yellow belly belts and nail down nails to keep the corn from blowing down. When a rainstorm is blowing up terrible and driving all kinds of terribles across the cornfield, then you can be sure of one thing. Running like the wind among the corn rows are the fairies, jerking their purple moon shaft hammers out of their belts and nailing nails down to keep the corn standing up so it will grow and be ripe and beautiful when the harvest moon comes again in the fall. Spink and Skabooch ask where the corn fairies get the nails. The answer to Spink and Skabooch is, Next week you will learn all about where the corn fairies get the nails to nail down the corn, if you will keep your faces washed and your ears washed till next week. And the next time you stand watching a big cornfield in late summer or early fall, when the wind is running across the green and silver, listen with your littlest and newest ears. Maybe you will hear the corn fairies going, Plastizzy, plastizzy, sizzy, softer than an eye wink, softer than a Nebraska baby's thumb. How the animals lost their tails and got them back traveling from Philadelphia to Medicine Hat. Far up in North America, near the Saskatchewan River in the Winnipeg wheat country, not so far from the town of Moose Jaw, named for the jaw of moose shot by a hunter there, up where the blizzards and the schnooks begin, where nobody works unless they have to, and they nearly all have to, there stands the place known as Medicine Hat. And there, on a high stool, in a high tower, on a high hill, sits the head spotter of the weather-makers. When the animals lost their tail, it was because the head spotter of the weather-makers at Medicine Hat was careless. The tails of the animals were stiff and dry, because for a long while there was dusty dry weather. Then at last came rain and the water from the sky poured on the tails of the animals and softened them. Then the chilly chills came whistling with icy mittens, and they froze all the tails stiff. A big wind blew up, and blew and blew, till all the tails of the animals blew off. It was easy for the fat stub hogs with their fat stub tails, but it was not so easy for the blue fox, who uses his tail to help him when he runs, when he eats, when he walks or talks, when he makes pictures or writes letters in the snow, 
or when he puts a snack of bacon meat with stripes of fat and lean to hide till he wants it under a big rock by a river it was easy enough for the rabbit who has long ears and no tail at all except a white thumb of cotton but it was hard for the yellow flongboo who at night lights up his house in a hollow tree with his fire-yellow torch of a tail it is hard for the yellow flongboo to lose his tail because it lights up his way when he sneaks at night on the prairie sneaking up on the flangwares the hippers and hangjasts so good to eat the animals picked a committee of representatives to represent them in a parleyhoo to see what steps could be taken by talking to do something there were sixty-six representatives on the committee and they decided to call it the committee of sixty-six it was a distinguished committee and when they all sat together holding their mouths under their noses just like a distinguished committee and blinking their eyes up over their noses and cleaning their ears and scratching themselves under the chin looking thoughtful just like a distinguished committee then anybody would say just to look at them this must be quite a distinguished committee of course they would all have looked more distinguished if they had their tails on if the big wavy streak of a blue tail blows off behind a blue fox he doesn't look near so distinguished or if the long yellow torch of a tail blows off behind a yellow flongboo he doesn't look so distinguished as he did before the wind blew so the committee of sixty-six had a meeting and a parleyhoo to decide what steps could be taken by talking to do something for chairman they picked an old flongboo who was an umpire and used to umpire many mix-ups among the flongboos he was called the umpire of umpires the king of umpires the prince of umpires the peer of umpires when there was a fight and a snag and a wrangle between two families living next door neighbors to each other and this old flongboo was called in to umpire and to say which family was right and which family was wrong which family started it and which family ought to stop it he used to say the best umpire is the one who knows just how far to go and how far not to go he was from massachusetts born near chappaquiddick this old flongboo and he lived there in a horse chestnut tree six feet thick halfway between south hadley and northampton and at night before he lost his tail he lighted up the big hollow cave inside the horse chestnut tree with his yellow torch of a tail after he was nominated with speeches and elected with votes to be the chairman he stood up on the platform and took a gavel and banged with the gavel and made the committee of sixty-six come to order it is no panic to lose your tail and we are here for business he said banging his gavel again a blue fox from waco texas with his ears full of dry bluebonnet leaves from a hole where he lives near the brazos river stood up and said mr chairman do i have the floor you have whatever you get away with i get your number said the chairman i make a motion said the blue fox from waco and i move you sir that this committee get on a train at philadelphia and ride on the train till it stops and then take another train and take more trains and keep on riding till we get to medicine hat near the saskatchewan river in the winnipeg wheat country 
where the head-spotter of the weather-watchers sits on a high stool in a high tower on a high hill, spotting the weather. There we will ask him, if he will respectfully let us beseech him, to bring back weather that will bring back our tales. It was the weather took away our tales. It is the weather can bring back our tales. All in favor of the motion, said the chairman, will clean their right ears with their right paws. And all the blue foxes and all the yellow flongboos began cleaning their right ears with their right paws. All who were against the motion will clean their left ears with their left paws, said the chairman. And all the blue foxes and all the yellow flongboos began cleaning their left ears with their left paws. The motion is carried both ways. It is a razzmatazz, said the chairman. Once again, all in favor of the motion will stand up on the toes of their hind legs and stick their noses straight up in the air. And all the blue foxes and all the yellow flongboos stood up on the toes of their hind legs and stuck their noses straight up in the air. And now, said the chairman, all who are against the motion will stand on the top and the apex of their heads, sticking their hind legs straight up in the air, and make a noise like a woof-woof. And then not one of the blue foxes and not one of the yellow flongboos stood on the top and the apex of his head, nor stuck his hind legs up in the air, nor made a noise like a woof-woof. The motion is carried, and this is no picnic, said the chairman. So the committee went to Philadelphia to get on a train to ride on. Would you be so kind as to tell us the way to the Union Depot? the chairman asked a policeman. It was the first time a flongboo ever spoke to a policeman on the streets of Philadelphia. It pays to be polite, said the policeman. May I ask you again if you would kindly direct us to the Union Depot? We wish to ride on a train, said the flongboo. Polite persons and angry persons are different kinds, said the policeman. The flongboo's eyes changed their lights, and a slow torch of fire sprang out behind where his tail used to be. And speaking to the policeman, he said, Sir, I must inform you, publicly and respectfully, that we are the Committee of Sixty-Six. We are honorable and distinguished representatives from places your honest and ignorant geography never told you about. This committee is going to ride on the cars to Medicine Hat, near the Saskatchewan River, in the Winnipeg Wheat Country, where the blizzards and chinooks begin. We have a special message and a secret errand for the head-spotter of the weather-makers. I am a polite friend of all respectable people. That is why I wear this star to arrest people who are not respectable, said the policeman, touching with his pointing finger the silver and nickel star fastened with a safety pin on his blue uniform coat. This is the first time ever in the history of the United States that a committee of sixty-six blue foxes and flongboos has ever visited a city in the United States, insinuated the flongboo. I beg to be mistaken, finished the policeman. The Union Depot is under that clock, and he pointed to a clock nearby. I thank you for myself. I thank you for the Committee of Sixty-Six. I thank you for the sake of all the animals in the United States who have lost their tails, finished the chairman.
Over to the Philadelphia Union Depot they went, all sixty-six, half blue foxes, half flongboos. As they pattered, pity-pat, pity-pat, each with feet and toenails, ears and hair, everything but tails, into the Philadelphia Union Depot they had nothing to say. And yet, though they had nothing to say, the passengers in the Union Depot, waiting for trains, thought they had something to say, and were saying it. So the passengers in the Union Depot, waiting for trains, listened. But with all their listening, the passengers never heard the blue foxes and yellow flongboos say anything. They are saying it to each other in some strange language from where they belong, said one passenger waiting for a train. They have secrets to keep among each other, and never tell us, said another passenger. We will find out all about it, reading the newspapers upside down tomorrow morning, said a third passenger. Then the blue foxes and the yellow flongboos pittered pity-pat, pity-pat, each with feet and toenails, ears and hair, everything except tails, pattered scritch-scratch over the stone floors out into the train shed. They climbed into a special smoking car, hooked on ahead of the engine. This car, hooked on ahead of the engine, was put on special for us, so we will always be ahead, and we will get there before the train does, said the chairman to the committee. The train ran out of the train shed. It kept on the tracks and never left the rails. It came to the horseshoe curve near Altoona, where the tracks bend like a big horseshoe. Instead of going around the long winding bend of the horseshoe tracks up and around the mountains, the train acted different. The train jumped off the tracks down into the valley and cut across in a straight line on a cutoff, jumped on the tracks again, and went on toward Ohio. The conductor said, If you are going to jump the train off the tracks, tell us about it beforehand. When we lost our tails, nobody told us about it beforehand, said the old Flongboo umpire. Two baby blue foxes, the youngest on the committee, sat on the front platform. Mile after mile of chimneys went by. Four hundred smokestacks stood in a row, and tubs on tubs of sooty black soot marched out. This is the place where the black cats come to be washed said the first baby blue fox. I believe your affidavit, said the second blue fox. Crossing Ohio and Indiana at night, the flongboos took off the roof of the car. The conductor told them, I must have an explanation. It was between us and the stars, they told him. The train ran into Chicago. That afternoon there were pictures upside down in the newspapers, showing the blue foxes and the yellow flongboos climbing telephone poles, standing on their heads, eating pink ice cream with iron axes. Each blue fox and yellow flongboo got a newspaper for himself, and each one looked long and careful upside down to see how he looked in the picture in the newspaper, climbing a telephone pole, standing on his head, eating pink ice cream with an iron axe. Crossing Minnesota, the sky began to fill with the snow ghosts of Minnesota's snow weather. 
Again, the foxes and flongboos lifted the roof of the car, telling the conductor they would rather wreck the train than miss the big show of the snow ghosts of the first Minnesota snow weather of the winter. Some went to sleep, but the two baby blue foxes stayed up all night watching the snow ghosts and telling snow ghost stories to each other. Early in the night, the first baby blue fox said to the second, Who are the snow ghosts the ghosts of? The second baby blue fox answered, Everybody who makes a snowball, a snowman, a snow fox, or a snowfish, or a snow patty cake, everybody has a snow ghost. And that was only the beginning of their talk. It would take a big book to tell all that the two baby foxes told each other that night about the Minnesota snow ghosts, because they sat up all night telling old stories their fathers and mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers told them, and making up new stories never heard before about where the snow ghosts go on Christmas morning and how the snow ghosts watch the new year in. Somewhere between Winnipeg and Moose Jaw, Somewhere it was they stopped the train and all ran out in the snow, where the white moon was shining down a valley of birch trees. It was the Snowbird Valley, where all the snowbirds of Canada come early in the winter and make their snowshoes. At last they came to Medicine Hat, near the Saskatchewan River, where the blizzards and the Chinooks begin, where nobody works unless they have to, and they nearly all have to. There they ran in the snow till they came to the place where the head spotter of the weather-makers sits on a high stool in a high tower on a high hill watching the weather. Let loose another big wind to blow back our tails to us. Let loose a big freeze to freeze our tails onto us again. And so let us get back our lost tails, they said to the head spotter of the weather-makers. Which was just what he did giving them exactly what they wanted, so they all went back home satisfied. The blue foxes, each with a big wavy brush of a tail to help him when he runs, when he eats, when he walks or talks, when he makes pictures or writes letters in the snow, or when he puts a snack of bacon meat with stripes of fat and lean to hide till he wants it under a big rock by the river and the yellow flongboos, each with a long yellow torch on a tail, to light up his house in a hollow tree, or to light up his way when he sneaks at night on the prairie, sneaking up on the flangware, the hipper, or the hangjast. End of Part 8 End of Rutabaga Stories by Carl Sandburg.